Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 44. My name is Dominic. I'm one of the co-hosts for the show. The other host is named Janice, and you'll hear from him after we get through this little intro. On today's show, we have the pleasure of speaking with traditional witchcraft practitioner, author, scholar, Mr. Kerry Wisner from the Troy Books website. Carrie studied astrology through Sybil Leake's school in the 1970s, and it was through correspondence with Miss Leake that he was led to Julie, a woman who practiced a form of traditional witchcraft which she called the Willow Path, a tradition with roots reaching to the Basque region of Europe. Carrie trained with Julie until her death. The book The Willow Path represents the first public presentation of many of Julie's teachings. As such, this is a testament to the unique form of the art that, to our knowledge, has not been seen in print before. In the years that followed, Carrie went on to train in various forms of Western magical arts, including being initiated into a hermetic order. Carrie has extensively researched the magical techniques of ancient Egypt, drawing from accredited academic works as his source material. He has had a number of articles published and is the author of several books, including The Eye of the Sun, The Sacred Legacy of Ancient Egypt, Song of Hathor, Ancient Egyptian Ritual for Today, and Pillar of Ra, Ancient Egyptian Festivals for Today. He is also a certified hypnotherapist and forensic investigative hypnotist. So it was a really fun talk that we had with Kerry. He's a super nice guy, and he gave us a lot of uh, practical tips that he's learned along the way, a lot of great takeaways. Um, One of the most important takeaways, I think, is the focus on connecting with nature. Oftentimes, historically, the epiphanies that you would see, the signs and symbols that you would recognize as communication from, you could say, the gods, or you could say spirits, or or whatnot, um, these were found in natural phenomenon. You would see an eagle uh, flying overhead, or a snake at your feet, these kind of epiphanies and phenomenon are much less likely to happen if you are cooped up in your attic or your basement or your office. It's hard to get those signs and those symbols in the way that practitioners traditionally were able to communicate with what they would call the spirit realm or the gods. So I think it's important that we get out into nature more in general but specifically with our practice. I'm going to wrap it up there and keep this brief so we can move on right into the episode. As always, we dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius. May the merits we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening.
Okay, we are very excited and pleased to have Mr. Kerry Wisner with us today on the show. This is going to be this is going to be really great. Uh, thank you for coming on, Kerry. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, we're we're very interested in diving into this topic. We haven't really touched on it much in the show so far. We're up to episode number forty-four, so I think it's definitely time. For our audience who may not be familiar with you, uh, would you mind just briefly telling us a little bit about yourself and your uh, maybe your tradition that you that you practice? And, uh, and for the audience, this is going to be part of a series on genuine, for lack of a better word, traditional witchcraft, European shamanism, however you want to frame it. Take it away. Sure, sure. So um, I've been involved in this for much of my life. Uh, in my early teens, I had run across a couple books, and uh, one of them was Mastering Witchcraft by Paul Hewson. Uh, Sibylik's book, The Complete Art of Witchcraft, uh, a few others. And I started reading these and it really fascinated me because it was a different approach towards spirituality and magic, of course, as well. Uh, there was always that factor of what can I do? What can I make happen? Uh, I was a teenage boy and I'm going, boy, can I make this girl over here like me or whatever? But there was something richer and deeper there that really spoke to me on, on I guess, on a spiritual level. And that was this connection with nature. So I began reading through that, and unbeknownst to me, my father was a Rosicrucian and had been studying hermetics for quite some time, but he kept a secret. He didn't tell anybody in the whole family, and one day I pulled out a couple of these books and showed it to him, so he started passing me information as well. And um, so I began learning things from his books and what he had going on. Um, eventually, I was a Midwestern boy, and eventually I ended up traveling on my own to California in my late teens. And uh, lived out there and really got involved in uh, hermetics, astrology, hypnosis. And I wanted to learn more about witchcraft, so, but I couldn't find anybody that I thought was reputable. And so I decided to write to Sibylique directly. I had been taking her astrology course through Astrology Dynamics and um, had some correspondence with her. And then she, um, I wrote to her and said, I want, basically wanted to go out and be a student with her. And she wrote back a very nice letter. I was surprised she wrote because uh, she was very famous at the time and uh, felt that it was best if I was in touch with an American and gave me the name of Isaac Bonowitz. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was uh, very big in the neo-pagan movement at the time and the occult movement. And he was living in Berkeley. And um, she said, get in touch with him and he would be able to help me find somebody. So uh, I did. And he was, he was very gracious, him and his wife. And they... Uh, uh, let me train with them for a very short while, but it wasn't the right fit for me. But they um, put me in touch with a lady near where I lived who uh, went by the name of Julie or Grandma Julia. I'm not going to reveal the family's name because they're still alive and well and active. If they want to come forward, they will. There are a number of people that also trained with Julie that, are, uh, that I'm in contact with and are, remember her very, very well. But uh, I was with her as one of her last students just before her passing, and I didn't know at the time she was dying of cancer. But she took me in and she said, look, we're a family tradition. I can't make you part of the family unless you marry my daughter. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and uh, so, but Julie was really very good. She taught me quite a bit over about a year's period. And while she began introducing me to different groups that she thought might be more conducive for me. And... Um, then at certain points, she did pass me over and I was initiated into a Celtic tradition, 
which was really more along the lines of Wicca, but they had some traditional stuff in it. And uh, Julie then uh, passed on. So I think I was her last student to my knowledge. Uh, but I'd learned a tremendous amount from her, took a lot of notes, which I still have to this day. This was back in the late 70s. And uh, I was with the Celtic Coven for about 10 years. I uh, eventually rose to be the uh, high priest of the coven. Um, and in that time, we made a lot of uh, networking with other groups. Uh, we worked extensively with some Welsh traditionalists. Eventually, I ended up leaving the group. Um, I felt it was just time. I was moving into other directions, and they were kind of falling apart themselves. And so I ended up um, practicing on my own, uh, ended up moving in with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. Uh, at that time, I was deeply involved in ancient Egyptian uh, mysteries and religion. I was very curious about that. So I started studying through academic sources and putting it all together and created uh, Aket Khuturu, which was a school of ancient Egyptian religion and magic. And uh, I had that running for a good 15 years. I wrote three books on the subject uh, that are still in print. And um, at that time, too, I started getting very deeply into hermetics. I had been all along because Julie had been a very, very strict about learning hermetics as well as traditional witchcraft. And um, I became an initiate and eventually became an adept in a well-respected order that's still active today. Um, I won't reveal their name, uh, but it's along the Ogdawadic um, system of magic as opposed to Golden Dawn. And uh, excellent, excellent training. Uh, but I still had deep inside this, this lingering feeling of the traditional aspect. What are the rural practices, the, the folkloric practices? Ceremonial magic is really, it's quite wonderful. It can really lead to some lofty insights and experiences. But I didn't find what came down to them to where the rubber hits the road, making things happen. You need a better job. You need this or that. I didn't think it really worked that well for that. Now, for some people, it may. And I, I'm not saying this is that what I'm doing is right for everybody, but this is what happened in my life. And at the time, um, I and my wife decided to move to the mountains of New Hampshire off grid. And we have 22 acres way up on top of a mountain. And I'll tell you, so you change. Something happens out there. You get very close to the land and to the, the forces there. And I found that the more that that happened, the more I explored the traditional aspects of my training through Julie and some of the stuff that Sibalik had written about. And then I began researching it extensively. And uh, that is where I'm at today. Uh, I find that it works extremely well. I am now the author of The Willow Path, which is a book on traditional witchcraft, and the sequel to that, which is Horns of the Moon. And um, that is, in a nutshell, how I got to where I am today. Uh, so I'm very familiar with everything from hermetics to Wicca to uh, ceremonial magic and also traditional witchcraft as it was taught to me and as I've come to understand it through my own research. So I guess to answer your question, then what is it? What is traditional witchcraft? You know, you're going to get a different answer no matter who you ask, no matter which traditional witch you ask. Uh, it is not Wicca. I'd say Wicca has some elements within it that it has borrowed or inherited, though I know there's some historians that would argue with me on that. But um, they that I do believe that Wicca does have some roots inside of traditional witchcraft. But 
Wicca itself was largely the invention of Gerald Gardner, who took from ceremonial magic. And I think it's a perfectly valid esoteric system. But traditional witchcraft, in my opinion, from my research and from what I was taught by my teachers, really has its roots in the ancient past. You've got to remember, prior to the Abrahamic traditions, Europe was... um, Uh, largely different tribes and cultures, each with their own beliefs, but all of them connected to the land, to the spirits of the land, to, you can call them gods or goddesses, but they were other world beings within the land. There was no real cohesive dogma or a central organization, but they all communicated and they were also all very similar. The Abrahamic traditions came in and eventually broke all of that up, scattered it. Uh, The people that were the People in the rural places, in my opinion, based on what I've been able to learn, um, continued to practice those because that was just their custom. They didn't have a name, but they practiced those basic beliefs. And at in time, they may have even forgotten parts of why they were doing it, but you still saw they put up the maypole, they do the horn dance. All of these customs continue to this day. Those are not Christian Abrahamic customs, despite what historians want to say. This has all had its roots in pagan past. And um, the folkloric magic too, you got to remember these people live close to the land. It was all about survival. If it didn't work, they wouldn't do it because they had to survive. So these practices continue on in form after form. You might not have the same wording, the same exact uh, symbols, but the principles, the concepts, the practices, or the tech, the technology behind it remain the same because it worked. And, um, Along these lines, then, you also saw uh, in time um, hermetics coming up through the Middle East with its roots in ancient Egypt, but really changing over time and moving in through the Renaissance into the city, into the cities. And so you had people practicing hermetic magic. And in time, some of the cunning folk and rural folk began to hear of this and incorporating elements of that into it. So out of all this mix is where traditional witchcraft as it's practiced today comes from. It really is from a fragmented, broken system, but with solid roots deep in the past, pulling from these different medics from ancient Egypt to a certain extent because it came up through hermetics and from the ancient pagan practices. And I'll say there's some traditional witches today that will also use Christian elements within it as well. Um, I work very hard not to. I I just am not comfortable with the Abrahamic tradition in any form. Uh, Even when you have traditional witches that talk about the Luciferian tradition or whatever, in my mind, that's pulling from the Abrahamic stream, and I just don't do that. So uh, uh, Julie and uh, Sybil, too, were very feminine-based, very goddess-oriented, if you want to use that term. Uh, We would use the term the the witch queen or the great queen, and so I find myself strongly drawn to that stream, but it doesn't mean that's the only or the right way. It's just what we use in our group. Would you say that it's sort of a uh, animistic tradition that's polyvalent and adaptable? Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. It's definitely animistic. And uh, there, the way I practice it, it really is polytheistic, except that in my opinion, from what I have come to understand, in essence, everything really is consciousness. And that's a very hermetic term, but 
that everything is consciousness. And so if you change your state of mind, you change your state of being, you change your state of consciousness. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I believe there's this one big supreme big daddy up in the sky who's this big consciousness. What it means is everything's connected, but they're within that. There are pools of identity, forces, other world beings, and that these other world beings are um, some of our more complex nature than us. You can use the term angel, you can use the term God or goddess, who knows? To my mind, they're just different. They're not necessarily better. They're not necessarily evil. They're just different beings. I think some of them take an interest in what we're doing and we can form relationships with them. And that is the difference between the witch, a real witch, and say a magician. Um, a ceremonial magician seeks to um, summon and control the spirits he works with, where the traditional witch seeks to partner with other world beings and form relationships with them and work with them to achieve their ends. So um, not sure if that answered the question, question or not, but that <laughs> that's what I got. <laughs> I think that was a great answer. Um, re, uh, backtracking for a minute. Would you be able to speak about your teacher, Julie, and her, her lineage, where she, where her family kind of originated and where, where that tradition kind of comes from that you're aligned with? Absolutely. I can only tell you um, what she told me and what I observed. She stated that uh, hers was uh, a family tradition reaching back to the Basque region of Europe. And um, she did, she explained that there were four different types of traditions that she was aware of. And I know there are more because I've seen other traditional, which is just a broad of information, but this is what Julie taught. And uh, Julie's tradition in her, in her words was a hearth tradition, a family tradition. And what was interesting about it is that everything revolved around the hearth of the home for her. And in my later years, as I have researched this more in depth, you'll find a tremendous amount of uh, traditions, folk traditions and rural traditions across Europe and into the British Isles that talk about the tradition centered around the hearth and the home and how the hearth is where the house spirit is, where the magic is done. But for Julie, all of her magic was done at the hearth. The whole family gathered at the hearth. She saw as the meeting point between the, the four elements. You had the wood representing earth, fire, the water and the cauldron, the steam rising up. To her, that was all four elements meeting in this one portal. And the witch herself was the element of spirit controlling it all. And uh, so hers was a hearth tradition. Now I'm going to say I've done a lot of research. I, I kept a lot of notes on her. And as I look back and I read through the notes, I see that she clearly drew from hermetic sources. And I've been able to, I've been able to pin down some of the books that she was teaching me from. Um, she drew from some Wicca. So she wasn't strictly just family. I, I got to make that clear. And I, I don't want to mislead anybody. It's not like I stumbled upon this ancient family that had all the deep, dark secrets. She had bits and pieces like, like everybody else out there. It was broken up. The years went by and she too pulled from different sources, but there were a lot of things that she taught me that I have never seen elsewhere or I've only seen very rarely. And some of that was the hearth, the hearth piece. Um, but that was what she uh, she claimed. Now she was very well respected in the community out there. Um, they 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 wouldn't mess with it. They they and she. I remember I was very young and naive, and she 
told me, she said she went to several of the covens and said, um, hands off this one. I'll pick the coven. Uh, she was very protective of me and they respected that. She was very good, but uh, I don't know if that helps, but that's what she, uh, where she stated. Yeah. You know, she claimed that she was part of a larger family called the Tower family. And um, they all wore in their family a tea, uh, a wooden tea. And I thought that was very odd. But as I have over the years researched it further, I find, find that the Tao cross, the Tao cross, goes back very far, farther from than the uh, Abrahamic tradition back to ancient Egypt. You see it back to Gobi Tepe, if I'm saying the word right, that uh, site in Turkey. So, uh, but I thought that was interesting. At the time, I didn't understand. Why would you walk around with a tea on? It was just a, you know, a, a tea with no loop, not like an onk. But um, that's what I can tell you about her without revealing the family name. And uh, Cool. Thank you. Very interesting. Janice, it looked like you were about to say something. No? Yeah, I wanted to, um, wanted to mention, I, I know you mentioned the Basque element in your teacher's um, influences. And that's interesting to me because the Basque are a very unusual people. They genetically, they're completely dissimilar to the surrounding genetic populations. They have large vestiges of pagan and uh, pre-Christian remnants in their culture and in their, you know, they have, they have magical practices that are still extant in their culture. So it's very interesting to me. And it's not the first time that I've met someone who has said that they had inherited something from Basques that was related to traditional witchcraft. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I don't know if what she told me was true. I don't. She had no. Reason, <laughs> she had no reason to lie. She really didn't. I mean, she was dying, and I, she was trying to do a good thing for uh, this young young kid that came into her house. Um, so she, if anything, she was kind of mischievous. Used to uh, uh, see if she could shock me a little bit because <laughs> I was I was so naive. I was a Midwestern boy just moved to California, and here's this lady in her. She was in her late fifties. And um, she she was quite a lady, but I don't think she ever lied to me. Uh, if she misled me in any way, she probably did not know that. So I don't think she was uh, deceiving me on uh, her roots at all. So let me ask you this. Um, let's jump right in. What is the willow path? What does that mean? What is it? Sure. Uh, that was a term that she used for her tradition. And um, she explained that they use that term because the witch knows how to bend and shape reality to in accord with their will. And uh, so she called it the willow path. And she was very clear that the witch is very different from pagans because we had pagans at the time in California. Um, she explained that we were the ones that really knew how to make these kinds of things happen. Um, I have never seen until very recently the term the willow path applied by anybody else toward the path of witchcraft. Um, However, I did start, as I was digging through re researching for my book, um, the term witch, W-I-C-H-E, relates directly to osiers that are bent and shaped and tied together. And that that's an old English term that also was um, referred to as a witch or a witch as in witchcraft. And that was the first time I had seen that in writing. 
but um, that's where the term witch hazel comes when you have witch hazel oil that's uh, because it came from the osiers of, of the hazel tree. So uh, I thought that was very intriguing that Julie and her family called it the willow path because as representing the witch, uh, I thought that was an interesting coincidence if it was that at all. But um, for us, for her, it was the, the path that can bend or weave to, as in accordance with the will. Now you'll find some traditional witches in England called the crooked path. And essentially it's the same thing. It's essentially the same thing, but I, I like Julie's term because you can get that visual idea that you can actually physically, well, psychically bend it, so. The willow is kind of a lunar tree mm -hmm. with watery connections. So I would assume that that may play some kind of role in the way that the expression of the path is executed, or am I reading too much into it? I'm not sure if I understand the question. I guess I'm going to say that I, the way I'm ta taught and when my experience is that magic is follows the lines of least resistance. Mm -hmm. It's very much like war. And uh, you can, one of the rules that I was taught by Julie and through Sybil Leake's writings um, is that you really should not define how the, how it's going to happen. Here's how the magic's going to happen. Because, again, it's going to follow the lines of least resistance. If you try to box it in too much, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. But instead, it's more about um, setting the goal, putting everything in, in motion toward that goal, but then letting the, the energy find the way that it will get there. And so in that way, it is very much like water. Um, or like electricity. I was talking to some students the other day on, on spell casting. So I'm very clear when I do my spells, I don't say, I might say what the goal is, but I'm not going to say, I want it to come to me through this person over here or come as a check in the mail or something like that, because that's extremely hard to do. You're really boxing yourself. Yeah. In. Rather, you just picture the goal as happening and then let it happen. Um, so I'm not sure if that answered your question or not, but it is very nebulous it's very wa very watery in that way cool I, I couldn't agree more that's that's really interesting that you said that um i'd like to talk about and you mentioned it earlier this connection of witchcraft and nature and the importance of kind of immersing immersion immersing yourself is that the word <laughs> in, yeah. in nature and really communing with nature and how that uh, that affects your your practice I feel like it's probably important. Sure. Um, I think this is a major area that's overlooked by most contemporary magicians and Wiccans today. Uh, especially Wicca, they'll talk a lot about it, but I don't think a lot of them really understand the need for it and to really get out into nature. And I'm not sure if I really fully did, even though I've been trained in this, until I moved to this mountain up here. Uh, up here, we're totally immersed in it. It's it's ever present. We're off grid. We live, we live by those seasons. We know what we have to do in order to get the firewood in so we can have a warm winters. You're living so close to the land. Um, prior to this, I had done a lot of, uh, a lot of ceremonial work, a lot of uh, Egyptian work, usually in a temple I had created up in the top floor of a house I had in the middle of a city. Uh, very, very good magic. It was good. You could really connect with the I want to say the celestial forces, uh, the, the gods and goddesses of the ancient Egyptians. But in traditional witchcraft, you get close to the land. You start living on the land. You start taking those walks in the forest, um, learning about every piece of it, being there day in, day out. 
something takes over, something changes in you, and you begin to become aware of a different realm or world. It's it's not obvious at first, but it's you start to see things, to feel that merging with another dimension. And the way I have been taught is that these other worlds do interpenetrate themselves in different areas, particularly in areas in nature. I think in the city, we've kind of just plowed over everything and cut off all those connections. But in nature, you'll find those liminal spaces, those places where the two meet and join. And if you're there and allow yourself to open up, to relax, to be part of the land, instead of just thinking, I'm here for a walk, but you're actually part of it, then those forces start to come through and start to become part of who you are. And then with that, um, you have the ability or the opportunity to begin to form relationships with the spirits that are there as well, the local spirits. And I'm not necessarily talking about deceased humans. I'm talking about these beings that of a different order, a different state of mind and being who in human terms, we can't even begin to put words on them. Uh, you, you could say they're very old, but I don't think time is the same for them. But you begin to form these relationships with them. And I think that's where the traditional witch's magic comes from. That's where the idea of the familiar spirit came from back in uh, the Middle Ages. These people were living so close to land. Yes, they were communicating and communing with these other world beings, and they became familiar with them and worked with them. They weren't summoning them. They weren't uh, commanding them like a ceremonial magician. They were forming this relationship and partnership with them. And that's that's the difference. And I, uh, having experienced that myself, um, for me and my temperament, I find it to be much more satisfying than a lot of the high ceremonial, ceremonial magic that you find in uh, contemporary magic today. So is that it's less coercive and more transactional? It is. It is. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't ever want to say that there isn't a specific process or technology behind it. I know this, this name is Stephen Skinner. He talks quite a bit about the technology of magic. Of course, he's into goetic magic and ceremonial magic, but the principle the principles are essentially the same. You have to follow certain specific techniques, but it doesn't mean you use the same words of power, the same exact approach. It's more the internal mechanisms going on and observing some of the basic rules, the rules surrounding timing, um, you know, diet, all of those things need to be observed. But the difference is, is that in traditional witchcraft, you begin to merge with the land, with these other dimensions, these other realms, and be, and form those relationships with them. Um, and a lot of that's done through light trance work, uh, even while you're just walking through the forest, or if you're, uh, I've done it in my circle up there, I've got a stone circle uh, that I've done that kind of work in. And a lot of times there's techniques you can do while just laying in bed and just in a light, uh, semi-conscious, semi-sleep state using some lucid uh, dreaming. As long as you have the correct symbols in place and you're just going through it step by step, um, you begin to move into this realm where you can become aware of these other forces and these other world beings and form those relationships. And so it is very experiential and um, some would say subjective. Uh, it doesn't feel subjective. <laughs> It feels as real as me sitting here talking to you right now. 
Now, somebody else later could say, you weren't really talking to them. It was in your mind, but, you know, you they were archetypes of, of your desire to do a podcast, you know? And then, I, the reality is, is yes, I once you enter that state of mind, you become aware of these other beings that are as real and sentient as you or I are. And I, but to, for me to prove it, I can't physically walk up and say, hey, shake their hand, unless you go through and do the same procedures I did. So uh, I, I hope that made sense. I, again, I tend to babble here. <laughs> no, it definitely makes sense. And that's very pertinent and important. We're big advocates on the show of the objective existence of spirits. And we've had We've had we've had several guests on here. We've we've tried to um, discuss spirits with whether we're talking about the Greek idea of daimons mm-hmm. or the voodoo loa, or um, even the you know the gods being objective, in, intelligent, self-aware, independent beings, not projections of our own psychology, but actually perhaps the formative forces that produced what we call our psychology in the first place. Um, so you were talking about the interpenetration of the realms, and I wanted to ask you about the three realms. Um, what are the three realms, and what what role do they play in in your work and in your work in nature and your trance work and the witchcraft? Because um, it's a triple realm, and I also find it interesting because you find this concept not you find it in Celtic material, but you even find it in Greek material. I mean the Orphic. Uh, the Orphic hymn to Aphrodite talks about her being queen of the three realms. You'll find it in most cultures, um, uh, ancient Egyptian to a certain extent, uh, but also in a lot of shamanic traditions the world over, even in the Americas. Essentially, it doesn't matter what you call it. Um, we use uh, Celtic terms because um, I can't believe how strongly my little short time with training or working with networking the uh, Welch traditionalists affected me, but they talked a lot about this in my time with them back in the eighties. And, um, and that stuck with me. So I still use those terms, but essentially it's the concepts are the same almost everywhere in the world, which lends itself to the objective reality of these. Um, I think our language and human, the human understanding of time and space really limits us in understanding these realms. And I think also the Abrahamic paradigm of a linear model of good versus bad, top to bottom, that's really strongly uh, hindered uh, contemporary occultists. And this is why I'm very fluent in Kabbalistic thought, but I don't care for it because I think it's too top to bottom, good, bad, very patriarchal. In the model that I've come to understand, you have three realms, but they're not necessarily linear. It's more like a sphere. And so as I explained in the book, um, there's the Anwen, or the Anun, which is the underworld. And you see this everywhere. And usually the access point to the underworld is some type of a hole, or cave, a tunnel, uh, a hole in a tree. Um, it can be the chimney, but it's always this entrance that leads you to this other world. And it's not necessarily physically under you. Um, again, you don't want to think in linear terms. I think the in the legends, they were using that because they didn't know what terms to use. But it, this is the realm that really is very powerful, very uh, earthy, that 
uh, you'll find uh, the legends of Elfame, of uh, these paradises where the nature spirits exist. And you'll find in the Celtic legends, these stories of the solar heroes, as in King Arthur or, or some of the others, journeying to Anun to get treasure. Well, the treasure they're seeking is the treasure of that realm, the, the energy, the spiritual essence, but it's told in very symbolic terms, such as the cauldron of inspiration, which of course is a very feminine symbol. So the Anun really is, if you look at like the painting behind me, that's a painting that we did for our, our coven. Um, the staying the world is the world tree. The base of it rests firmly in the Anun. But then as you start to move out of the Anun, or right, if you want to think linear, rising up, uh, or if you want to think in terms of a sphere, rising within, going within, you start to change and it starts to move between Anun, the underworld, and the Abred, which is more of a nebulous area that in my mind, um, encompasses what Victorian and contemporary occultists would call the astral and a lot more. And in between, there's a threshold, and that threshold is our world. <clears throat> and as vast and as, as expansive as our physical world appears to be, it's actually quite thin when you consider this. And these two dimensions really interpenetrate our world readily. I think of our world not even as a separate world, but as really a threshold between these two. You move from there and keep going further into this model or rising up in the model, if you want to look at it that way. You eventually get to the uh, realm of the um, of Gwenfed, which is uh, this, this beautiful solar realm of uh, the Elysian Fields, the Field of Reeds of the Egyptians, the Summerland of the Celts, and so many other paradises. For us, in our trance work, what I, what I found, what we found is that the beings whom we call gods um, really manifest or can express themselves best in that realm, but they exist everywhere. They exist because everything is consciousness. Um, they're part of every single realm. No, none of these realms are better, more spiritual, more sacred. You're not going to find that there's a heaven and a hell. There might be some places that you could consider hell. There's just like there are on our planet. But none of them are better or worse. So it's, it's a, that's a very Abrahamic or Christian thinking. So you've got these three realms, but they tend to, if you look at the legends, merge back onto themselves. And I say that because at the heart of Gwenfed lies the castle of glass or Carwadir. And within it is the cauldron of the great goddess, the goddess of inspiration. And you'll see this in the legends. Well, this same cauldron and Karwadir also exists in the Anun. And you think, well, how is this possible? You've got Anun, the underworld. You've got Gwenfit up here. This is impossible. It's a sphere. They merge back on themselves. We've got to stop thinking in linear past, present, future terms and start realizing that the universe, just like, just like the Earth, is a sphere. It, it works in cycles and movements. It, it ebbs and flows. And so you can approach this rich spiritual essence that is the sacred cauldron, the grail, if you would, of grail mythology through the underworld, as some of the King Arthur myths do, or through a different realm, reaching up through Gwenfed in the Summerland. 
I know it's, it's a hard concept to understand. It's a hard concept to explain. I think I spend two chapters on the Willow Path on it, and I still have students who are really good students email me. So I think I got it, but could you explain it again? And you know, it's hard to explain. It's very cool, and it adds a lot more depth than people may realize that you, you can find in traditional witchcraft. I think it's a very useful and beneficial exercise to kind of contemplate these things and get immersed in there. You'll, you'll find as you practice spirit travel, traveling in spirit or astral projection, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think astral projection, the term is too limited, but move, you find that as you move through these exercises, you can begin to move into these different realms, these different dimensions. And then it begins to make sense because you're experiencing it to just hear somebody talk about it or to try and read it on paper. Again, our language is so limited. You just can't explain it. Well, um, you have to just like, uh, if you want to see what California is like, you got to go there. <laughs> you know, I, I can tell you all day what it's like, but until you go there, you don't know what it's like. And it's the same with these realms. You don't know until you've actually gone and experienced it. And uh, I don't want anybody to take this stuff on faith. I want you to go out and do it. Go out and, and do it and see what happens for you. And uh, it's pretty interesting. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the experiential part is essential. Um, uh, you mentioned earlier, I mean, you talked about the gods and specifically the goddesses. And I think you said uh, the witch queen at one point. Yeah. Um, in, your, in your practice, what do the gods look like? What, what kind of gods? Who is the witch queen? Are you mainly kind of hanging out in the Celtic uh, paradigm or, or know, what can you say about that? My, I guess over the years, it's, it's, it's moved back and forth. Um, I will say that very, very early on when I was in my teens, one of the things that, and I talk about this in uh, the new book, uh, The Horns of the Moon, uh, I had an experience where an other world being that was very feminine made her presence known to me. Now I didn't have some vision. There wasn't some Egyptian goddess standing there. It was rather just this overwhelming presence that was there. You can't put your finger on it. You can't sit there and draw. At least I couldn't. In my experiences, these are very rich spiritual feelings that our three-dimensional thinking have a hard time wrapping themselves around. As time went on and I got more involved in more regimented types of training, such as uh, through Hermetics or ancient Egyptian teachings um, and in the Celtic, we did have specific images, that God forms that we would work with. And um, those are extremely helpful precisely because they do use visual images that we on this level of our present existence can relate to and understand. And so that's when you start to pull in these different types of pantheons, you know, the Egyptian gods or the Celtic gods and goddesses, uh, because the imagery helps you relate to these, these essences of forces. It doesn't mean that those forces are archetypes or nebulous in any way. I firmly am convinced, and I'll argue with any psychologist about this, these are real sentient living beings. They really are, in my opinion. They choose different types of symbols and forms that they can best relate to us through. So to answer your question, it's gone back and forth from very nebulous, unidentifiable 
spiritual presences that are very, very real that I could communicate with and get real results in my life to times when I have used specific statues. For example, I was very big in, and still am very big into the worship of the goddess Hathor, Huturu. And I use very specific symbols and tools and statues that represent or bring her through, let's put it that way. But not for a second do I think that that, that entity, that deity, looks like that statue. It's just the form that she's chosen to help relate to me and vice versa. Makes sense? So um, it does. Now, now, all these years later, living out in the forest, I'm going to say most of my, most of my practice now is back to, to these very abstract I know she's there. I know he's there, this, this Lord of the forest, this Lord of the land. But does this being appear to me, stand there? No, but I know, I know. I, there's, they're there as much as you are sitting there right there. Um, they're very real. But I think I've gotten to a point where I can relate to them without having to depend so much on imagery and symbols. Having said that, in a lot of the trance work, there are certain local I'm going to call them spirits or other world beings that have made appearances to me. Um, but it's all very mysterious. So there's one in particular that um, has come through uh, deep in the forest as a lady cloaked in a red cloak. And uh, it's very clear. It's very clear. And all you see is the red cloak and her hands, which she appears to be wearing white gloves that to this day, I, I cannot, I cannot, she won't let me see anything else, just that. And um, so, so there are times when there are certain visual things that come through that are very real. But in relation to your question, um, yeah, I've, I've done it both ways. Um, and to this day, I will call on different Celtic gods or goddesses if I feel it's appropriate. The Egyptian ones, I, I relate to very strongly. I use a lot of Egyptian because that's, I've got a lot of experience with that. I think a lot of the roots of com contemporary magic um, come from there. I really do. And I know a lot of people are going to argue with me on that. Um, I don't care. I we're not, we're not going to argue with that. No, evidence is just overwhelming. It really is. I want to, I actually would like to segue for a minute into Hataru Hathor because she is such a big deal. And yet you, you know, modern attention is not really focused that much on her comparatively, but in Egypt, she was tremendously important. Yes. And in my opinion, she still is. And you. since you're a devotee, I, I was just wondering if you might be able to speak a little bit on her and your understanding of her mysteries. Um, you're going to have to keep me quiet because I will talk for a long time on this. Uh, <laughs> Go for I, it. I spent years researching academic texts on this. I went and found the actual um, transliterations of the Temple of Dendera from a French Egyptologist. And then I translated the French into English because I wanted to know everything about this temple and her her uh, religion, if you call it that. I wouldn't call it religion, but um, essentially she's one of the oldest uh, entities or deities that uh, is known to humanity going back to pre-dynastic times. Uh, her, she was highly worshiped throughout all of uh, Egyptian history. Um, the queens were seen as the embodiment of her. She was perhaps more revered and more powerful than uh, 
Aset or Isis. Isis cult really grew out of Hawthors and they kind of merged. And then Isis went on to become big into uh, Europe, of course, we saw um, during the Roman era. Um, her, she was just a fantastic goddess, a goddess that was both light and dark. I mean, she was related directly to uh, she, her darker half, or yeah, I, I hate terms like darker half. Her more passionate half was Tekhmet, <laughs> the, the great lioness that, that could destroy all of humanity. Um, and yet was highly protective. She is the power that protects the sun god. She's the, at once, the mother of Ra at dawn, the lover of Ra as he becomes a man, she then becomes the young woman at noon, making love to him. And then as he approaches old age at sunset, she is his daughter who greets him in the West and takes him into the womb of the goddess Nuit, or Nuit. Nuit is the uh, Crowley version, but Nut, who Nut in turn really is a form of author who's a, who's a cow goddess. And there he goes through the transformation as a reborn again in the morning. Um, I mean, there's so much you could say about her, her religion. Um, she was strongly uh, paired with Horus or Haru. And every year there was an annual celebration at the Temple of Edfu where Hathor's or Huthru's statue was taken by barge and her priestesses by barge from Dendera to Edfu, where they would be greeted by the priesthood there. And for a week, week, maybe two week long celebration, it was the marriage of these two. And they'd bring the statues together. And essentially the idea was that they would make love and from that union would come their child. Um, and we know from certain inscriptions that this was actually a uh, ritual that was done between priestesses and priests at the time in the temples as well. Um, so sacred sexuality was a part of her religion. Um, there's so much I could say about her. And uh, I find her to be uh, uh, very compatible with the practices that I'm doing now. Um, and I was worried about that because what I'm doing now is far cry from ancient Egypt. We're, we're out in the woods in a stone circle that I made myself uh, cutting limbs into stangs and uh, it's very different, but she, this being seems very comfortable with that. And um, uh, I've been able to integrate the two at times very, very well. So did that help you at all? I think that was great. Yes, absolutely. Now you spoke about a sting. I think that some of our listeners know what that is, but some might not. So what is a sting? That's a, Pitchfork, the typical pitchfork, except with two prongs, not three, though some will have three or more um, uh, prongs on them. Uh, but generally a stang, which is a term basically meaning pole, uh, you'll find woodcuts of this going back uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. And with the images of witches flying on them, as opposed to flying on brooms. Um, it's actually on the car. I don't know if that, can you see? Yeah. Uh, uh, that's the staying right there. So, and as I mentioned, it's the, in our system, it's the tree that rises through the world. So it becomes a conduit between all of these worlds. And um, so you'll find that many traditional witches will see it almost as a portable altar of sorts. I like to see it more as really a good representation of most of what traditional witchcraft embodies. And that is 
It embodies the, the three worlds reaching up toward Karwadir. It embodies the masculine, which is the tall shaft rising up, meeting the yani or the, the vagina with the Y at the top as the horns. So you have masculine and feminine meeting there. And at that point is the point where there's this spirit, more the Gwenfid, the spiritual realms, the higher, well, I hate those terms, higher, just these, these areas where these beings of a much more complex nature than us manifest best in. And so you see that there. Now, a lot of witches will place a candle in between the horns, and that represents this font of energy between these two forces coming together. And so that becomes that point. Now, some witches um, who are more masculine-oriented, more oriented toward the master, will, um, or the witch god, if you would, uh, will see this thing as the horn god, the horns of the god. And they'll look at that. And that's completely valid. There really is. And they'll often place the skull up on top of the pole instead of having wooden uh, horns. Um, there's an old custom found a referenced in the Encyclopedia of London um, from the early 1900s showing this ritual of swearing of the horns. And it showed some folks in a bar, <laughs> but they had a pole and they had antlers attached to this thing. But it shows that this was a custom that you see reference to it going back from Middle Ages all the way up to present day. Whether they knew what they were, what it represented or not, I don't know. You know, you don't know. But I, it's another one of those remnants of ancient pagan practice that has survived. Though you're going to get some modern historians who are going to say, no, Robert Cochran invented the staying. It never existed before that. But we, these woodcuts are there. These photographs from people in the 1800s are there. I mean, this isn't, they're there. <laughs> so. I think that there's some, um, I think that there's some analogy to the Potomitan and voodoo. Yes. Even the, the world tree and shamanism, Absolutely. you know, which sometimes is a chimney, which sometimes is the hole in the hut but other times is a pull. Yes, absolutely. I see it exactly like that. And um, I will use it like that. Uh, that's how I, how I envision it. In pr actually practical magic, there's a number of things you can use it for, um, for marking out the, the, uh, the compass or the circle, if you want to call it that, for um, summoning uh, spirits, calling on spirits, uh, because it reaches through the worlds. One thing which I do, which um, a lot of traditional witches don't do, is I have a smaller one, and it's about maybe this tall, uh, maybe about a foot or two tall, and I will set that um, on my hearth right behind the candle. And if I'm doing candle magic, I'll set it there. Sometimes if I'm not, I'll set it there anyway. But the whole idea is that in the spell, it's not just my will. I'm pulling forces from all these realms into my working, and whatever I'm projecting is going into all of those worlds as well. And so in doing so, you'll find that the concept of reverse polarity of energies moving back and forth through these different worlds um, comes into play and will give your ritual, your working, much more power because it now exists on multiple worlds, not just the one that you're sitting there trying to make it happen on, because all of this is interconnected. and. Uh, 
If you look at Dion Fortune's um, writings, she talks a lot about the uh, reverse polarity and how energy moves between the different realms. Though she didn't use the terms we use by any means. But, um, it makes me think of two things. It makes me think of a, an antenna transmitting and receiving between the worlds. And it also makes me think of actually alternating current electricity, okay. AC instead of DC. Yeah. I can see that. I, I One thing I want to explain to anybody that's listening is these tools, whether it's a black hilt knife, a fair wand, a stang, they are not symbolic. These are not symbolic items. Um, these are, do not represent this or that, though you're going to see in my book, I say this represents because our language is so limited. It's so limited. The reality is, is that they are expressions of these different forces and thus extensions of them. And that's so important. When you are holding that staying, it's not representing a conduit. It's not, it's not uh, symbolic of it. It is those forces. It is the, an extension of those. When you're holding in ceremony magic, when you're holding up a pentacle, it doesn't represent that force. It is that force. It is. You have to have that clear in your mind because everything is consciousness. You've got to keep that in your consciousness so you keep that link. You form that link and you realize that this too is an extension of that force that you're working with, that you're evoking, that you're... Uh, trying to manipulate or bring to work with you. Um, the minute you say, well, it's symbolic of, you immediately cut that off and you start to create a barrier between you and your goal. And that's, that's a hard thing for a lot of students to learn. It was hard for me to get beyond. I, I know early in my spellcasting days when I was in my teens, you know, <laughs> it's like, how can this possibly, this candle, me chanting this over this candle, going to do anything? How can that possibly do it? Yeah, I know psychic power, blah, blah, blah. How, how can I? I'm not, I'm no great psychic. How am I going to make this? The trick, the trick is to realize that everything is consciousness, that it is not symbolic, that it is, this is your desire. This is it. This is it right here. This is, this is an extension of it. If you can do that, at least for the duration of the ritual, you're there. Then you just got to let go and let it happen. But I think our culture, especially now where we're so materialistic, we're so technological and we've been so influenced by this paradigm of good versus bad, heaven and hell, you can't do it because there's a big daddy upstairs that says you can't, that we can't get past that in our modern thinking. And so a lot of what magic is, is unlearning that conditioning and realizing that yeah this is an extension because it is it is an extension of it. that staying isn't just an antenna it actually is reaching through all those worlds right then and there and that's it's i i guess i wanted to make that clear as i was listening to you that people people miss that point when they get into magic it's a huge point it's a huge point if we were to walk into a hindu temple in india and say oh that's that that statue is just a symbol it just symbolizes the god we'd be looked at sideways by people that is the god the statue is the god if we were to go to africa and go to the eshu in the neighborhood shrine that's not symbolic of eshu that that shrine the 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 image in the shrine is eshu 
when the dancers put the costumes on, they are the gods. It's not. And I think that the issue is this analytical, you know, Descartian, rationalistic, dismissive attitude, which really began with the Enlightenment, although we can trace it further back, of mm. course. The Enlightenment just gave it that, that kind of thought, a megadose of steroids. And I think we all suffer from that in the West. I I, I've been... I've been studying and practicing esotericism in some way for most of my life. And I still, I still struggle with the remnants of that indoctrination, even though I have seen and I have known that this is real, just as you have many times over more than me, I'm sure. But still, I, it's like a virus that's in our heads. You know, it's so hard to break. Oh, even though for me, I, I have to force myself to to step out of that mindset because we're so conditioned in our culture. We're so conditioned in our culture to think that way. But more to your point, uh, the ancient Egyptians were the exact same way. For them, the gods were those carvings, were those statues. I love the the way that the Egyptians, and your example, where the they replayed these divine um, dramas on earth as <laughs> in heaven. They're They're recreating these things, but not just as a symbolic gesture, like you were saying, but as heaven on earth, you know, the ancient Thebes was seen as heaven on earth. So just that recreating heaven through images, the images are the gods. There's, there's a spell that my mind is drawn to right now where you're uh, invoking Hermes into yourself. And you're saying that um, you are, I, I am you, your name is mine. My name is yours. I am your image. So you're not, you're becoming a symbol of Hermes, but you're also becoming Hermes in that spell because you are his embodied image. So I, I think that Egyptian perspective is, is extremely useful in this context. And, and when you do that, you start to invite almost a type of possession and you'll find that you become, it's, it's quite an interesting feeling. It sounds like you've been through this, but it, it's quite an interesting feeling where you become more than you are more than more than what you knew you could be because you are you're, there's another entity who's working with you and through you and um that's so important and again you'll see that in ceremonial magic but they're so careful about that where i think the witch invites that though she's careful about what she's going to invite you know people look at possession as if it's some scary thing well it depends on what spirit or other world being you're working with just like just like when you're walking down the street and you meet a stranger, you've got to know that person and get comfortable with them before you let them into your house. Well, and that's that's how the witch works. But I think that traditional witchcraft, as I understand it, a lot of it can be and does involve a certain amount of possession up to a point, especially when you're working with this familiar spirit. You become more aware of, well, in my case, her. I have a female um, uh, familiar spirit. And... Uh, you become more comfortable with that and then you start to allow them to work through you as well, but you still maintain your own identity. And I, I don't know if that's the same as what you're saying, but it's the yeah, concepts yeah. are the same. Can you talk about the fetch, the idea of the fetch as well? Yeah. Um, very complex subject and it depends on who yeah. you're talking to and in what context uh, I spend at least two to three chapters in the horns of the moon on the subject Briefly, the fetch, as I understand it, it was also called the second skin, uh, your shadow self. 
the Egyptians would have equated it with the Swat, and uh, which relates to the shadow. Um, and this isn't the shadow in the Jungian sense of being your, your negative self. This is more of an actual body that we possess or a substance that we possess. In the order which I trained in the Hermetic order, we called it nefesh material, and it, which is a, a Hebrew term. But essentially, the way I understand it and have come to use it is the fetch in traditional witchcraft can be... Um, how can I word it, projected in a number of different ways. The most common way that I found is usually um, to have a triangle out on the ground, either traced with some kind of a powder or with herbs. Um, I know there are some images of three stangs laying down, interconnecting to each other, and then using that. Um, I know of some hermetic orders that will place a cord on the ground and do that. Essentially, it's about visualization, using your breathing, and allowing force to follow will. Imagine allowing the faculty of imagination to be the tool through which this energy can travel. And I think that bothers a lot of people because they don't understand what imagination is. It's not the same as fantasy. Imagination is the faculty of the mind to perceive and understand these patterns of energy within other realms that we don't normally perceive. Just like our eye perceives wavelengths of light and then we reinterpret it into patterns that make sense. So imagination is that, it is not fantasy. So when I say to project the fetch, you've got to make sure you have uh, fasted for a while. You don't want to be bloated. You want to have avoided any kind of sexual intercourse, uh, say for about two to three days, um, because you want that passionate energy inside of you, because that is part of the nefesh energy or the, the sawat energy, as the Egyptians would say, that's going to be used. And you want to be able to control your breathing through regular, deep, steady, rhythmic breathing. And I talk about that in the book quite a bit. And you want to be in a quiet place, preferably in nature. Uh, undisturbed. Um, it's best if you can lay down and put yourself in a light trance, but I've done it many times standing up. But essentially what you're doing is you're breathing in, allowing yourself to pull whatever energy you, in, you can from the nature around you and from your own inner energy, and then projecting out through the solar plexus. And you do that by just imagining it as a stream of energy. It can be white, it can be silvery gray, whatever. And you're projecting it into that triangle and uh the egyptians uh as well would form it into two one of two different forms and interestingly the agduatic order that i'm part of does the exact same thing now whether they got it from these egyptian teachings or they had it on their own i don't know <clears throat> but um uh essentially Whereas the witch will do the ceremony, the traditional witch will sometimes do it differently, but essentially you can project it as a ball of energy into that triangle, or you can project it into a shadowy form of yourself. It does not mean that you are going to enter it. You, your consciousness can, but that's moving to the next level. Right now, you're just creating this energy, this fetch that is there. Um, now, what's interesting is in traditional witchcraft, a lot of times uh, they will project it into the form of an animal. 
So you'll see the stories about the rabbits, uh, the witch being a rabbit or um, a horse, a mare, whatever. And um, that's where that comes from. What's interesting then is once you do that, um, you can send it to do a task, uh, whether it's deliver a spell, gather information, whatever. And um, now in Bosque witchcraft, there's a spell where the witch will stand naked with a candle or flame behind her at night so she can see her shadow on the wall. And she will then imagine the energy going into that shadow and that shadow will be her fetch. But then the trick is um, to send it out to whatever you want to go. Now, one thing I used to do just to help develop myself was I would actually send it to someplace local that I'd never really been to before. And I'd send it and tell it, just go and observe. And then I'd give it a time when I was going to call it back. And then I'd forget about it. I'd just let go and forget about it. And of course, your rational mind saying, that's all imagination. I'm making it up, blah, blah, blah. Okay, it's imagination. I don't care. I write down what I did, put it in my diary. Then the point of time comes back. You stand in front of the triangle. You just imagine it, call it back, thank it for its purpose, and then pull it back into the solar plexus. And then start to just, what impressions come to you? What impressions, what are you thinking of? What's, what's going on? And you write them down, whatever they are. And I would do that. Then I have a meal, ground myself a little bit. Then I go to that location and see. And it was usually very highly accurate. I would, I would actually see some of the structures that were there and they matched what my impressions were as, and I had written them down. So I, you know, I, I wasn't playing tricks in my mind because I had it written down what, what I would see. That's a good trick to do to help develop your success. And once you start experiencing that success, you become more confident and can do more with it. That's a, basically what a fetch is. Um, in time, you learn how to project your consciousness into it and become, become aware of what it sees at the same time. Now, in those situations, you're still aware of your physical body. It's the weirdest sensation. It really is. You know what's going on in the room around you. You know you can feel it, but your attention seems to be drawn more and more into what that fetch is doing. And you actually see through its eyes, feel what it feels. And then, but um, if someone were to walk in the room, you'd snap back. It's, it's, it's not quite astral projection, but it's very close because it's using a different body, a different type of body. And in my book, I talk about the different bodies and how they relate to the Egyptian teachings compared to traditional witchcraft and compared to um, hermetics. But uh, that in a real quick nutshell is what the fetch is, in my opinion. Um, there is something of a darker nature to it, and that is you'll see old folk tales of, of riding the mare or riding someone's second skin. And you'll see these old folk legends where somebody will wake up and they've been sweating and having nightmares, and they believe that the local witch had ridden them. Well, what, what's happened there, what the occult teaching is, is that it is possible to pull the, the vitality or the etheric energy, if you want to call it that, from another person and form that body and then project yourself into it and use their energy as the fetch. So you're not using your own, you're using theirs because it's very negative. Um, <laughs> it is, but I can see how if you were older, um, 
if you somehow didn't have that energy available and you were skilled enough at this, you could do that. And I can see where that's probably where those legends come from of these people uh, being ridden. Um, so that's that's a dark, t- uh, one of the more, yeah, more malefic forms of magic. Um, Lee Morgan talks about it in his book, uh, Deed Without a Name. Uh, a good book, a good book for anybody that's interested. So Very interesting. And like going back to Egypt again, you do see spells involving involving your shadow as as kind yeah. of a servant, um, which is very interesting. That connection there. Um, just back to the fetch. What what does that name mean? Where does that come from? Any idea? I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a cool name. I like it, <laughs> <laughs> but I have no idea. Uh, I think I can, I want to say it's out fetching. Things. Yeah, yeah. It's out, you know, but I I don't know. I've never seen. Okay. On it. Okay. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I think this probably to a certain degree interconnects with the concept of the interpenetrating worlds are the tides. Um, the tide, I know in some traditions they're called the Akashic tides, um, you know, and others, they have other terms. I know in the Celtic tradition, I can't remember the name, but I know there's a name for them in the Celtic tradition too, but what are they? Cause you speak about them a bit. I can only go by the way I was trained. And um, so what they are is we use solar tides, lunar tides, and of course, planetary tides. Um, In the Agdawadic order that I'm in, they will also break it down into elemental. Um, I I had done it a lot. I don't find it to be that necessary for the type of work I do. But we will look along the lines of seasonally. Where, what season are we in? Um, Right now, here in the northern hemisphere, we're entering into the harvest season. Well, it's a perfect time for summoning the dead, for uh, finishing up projects, uh, for going through that veil. And so any of our works will tend to be along those lines or for harvesting. So all of the work I've been doing all year, really trying to make it come to fruition now. Um, That's just, it's like, if you look at a clock, it's like the hour hand on a clock. The one that is really used a lot in traditional witchcraft is the as the lunar tides, of course, and um, that's very very common in in witchcraft of all forms. But uh, I look a lot to what is the phase of the moon are we in? Um, I even break it down right to the day. We call it the Lady of the Moon. Uh, each day has a different meaning or purpose in the system magic which we use. But you know, you can look at the waxing period up to the full moon uh, from. I'd say the three days before to the three days after the full moon is when a lot of this etheric energy, the energy used for the fetch is strongest. So if you're going to work with the fetch, that's excellent time during that week prior to and right after. Uh, We will use uh, the waxing moon for new beginnings, for new energy, for starting things, for building things, for bringing things to us. Um, The waning moon, of course, really the from the full moon to the first quarter, that's used a lot for divination, uh, removing things that are unwanted, um, along those lines, but a lot also spirit communication. Uh, from the, the last quarter, really tends to be more for darker things. Uh, you're going to want to set your protections. Uh, if you have people, and you will, anybody gets into this, you get people who will try to do malefic things to you through magic. It's just, I don't know why. They, it just happens. So I set my protections up then. Uh, and uh, also that's excellent time to remove those things that are unwanted in your life. Um, but you got to be careful. 
Um, Sybil used to warn that if you try anything of a positive nature, it tends to backfire at that time. So she would not recommend that you do anything at that time for, say, get a better job or whatever. Uh, my impression, as I've done this type of work over the years, is I think there's ways you can think of your goal and work with the tide, whatever tide you're in. So let's say it's waning moon, but you want to get that new job. What are the conditions holding you back from getting that job? What's stopping you? What is in the way? Maybe that's what you can work that tide for. Instead of I'm going to get the job, it's I'm going to get rid of the thing that's keeping me from getting the job. But it gets tricky. You got to be you got to be careful. You're not thinking of the job itself. Um, so those are the lunar tides. They they're obviously at least in our system very feminine oriented, very uh, great queen, witch queen oriented, um, with all that that means. Uh, and then finally, we'll look at the planetary days and hours. Uh, I do look at that. Uh, I have studied astrology extensively. And um, some people feel planetary hours and days aren't that powerful. I, I find they can be if you are working very specifically with a specific type of energy or planet. And you want to resonate with those forces. And I use the term resonate as opposed to what a lot of witches use. A lot of witches will say they're going to charge this item. They're going to, um, yeah, they're going to draw the energy in from the, for this item. I talk a lot about resonance instead. The whole idea is that because everything is consciousness, you need to find those items that resonate well with that force or that energy. And so if you can do that, that energy just naturally acts as uh, a conduit coming into your life, bring that stuff to you, rather than saying, I'm going to use my will to charge this up. Well, it sounds like you're just putting electricity in a battery that's going to dissipate. Again, a very subtle thing, but in our system, it's more about working with these forces and resonating with them. So I'll use planetary forces along those lines. Um, unless what I have is, unless what I'm doing is not planetary based, or it's an emergency. <laughs> you got to do the magic right now. I, if, there, if there's something I got to do right now to make something happen right now, I don't care what the side is. I'm just going to do it. And um, But usually by if you're in that state of mind, your desire and your will is so powerful because of your need that it's going to make it happen. But you've got you to really want it. A teacher of mine once told me when he was teaching me some things that you're always supposed to try and do what you were describing, conduct the, the forces into the target, whatever, whatever work you're doing, being the target. Uh, you shouldn't use your own life force, your own energy, because it can drain you and it can age you. And he said, you'll see some witches who don't understand this look much older than they actually are because they're constantly using their own life force to accomplish things instead of properly conducting the forces or using spirits to accomplish the work. And when I say using spirits, I don't mean that in a denigrating way toward the spirits, but just employing the cooperation of the spirits. Exactly. I agree completely. Um, I know, especially the people who get into Wicca because Wicca it's so cursory. It's so surface. They don't go into depth. And so I remember so many times you'd see them just yelling and chanting and oh, I'm going to put everything I got into this and all their passion into it, which is great. I love that. But they forgot or did not know about this other piece. And so you're absolutely right. You're using your life energy and putting it into that item. And then you feel totally exhausted afterwards. And um, 
uh, yeah, it's it, it it's an important important step that I think a lot of people either ignore or don't understand or don't know about. And I think the planetary day and hour thing is really helpful, especially with Mercury or Hermes, hmm. um, whatever form you call him by, because he's the god of the center of the crossroads of the middle, and his day is in is Wednesday, the middle of the week. So in a way, there's almost a spatial and a temporal confluence on his day and hour because it's the middle of time and he's the God in the middle of everything. And I've found that the planetary days and hours work especially well with him. And like you said, there's just this conduction that occurs where it's almost like you're lining it. It's almost like lining when you have a camera and you're, you're adjusting the different lenses and then you get that clear picture, that clear image, everything's in focus. And then that's when it comes through like an aqueduct. And then instead of being drained, you feel like the Greek word enthusiasmos. You get Mm. filled with this sort of pneumatic enthusiasm, this energy, this excitement, this life force when you're doing this, right? Yeah. Sorry, Dom. I just wanted to get that out before I forgot. Oh, no, that was good. Um, Building on this idea of of not using your own life force, we talked to this uh, gentleman, Chris Bellardi, who is a practitioner of uh, German witchcraft, essentially, Brockerei. And uh, he conveyed a story to us where his teacher was using too much of her own life energy and it made her very sick as opposed to, I mean, that's a, a Christian kind of uh, folk magic where you're supposed to be using the power of God and oh. she was putting too much of her energy into it. And yeah, there's the repercussions for that. I, I fully understand. And uh, I, again, I think it's an area that, people overlook way too much. Uh, so I, I do spend quite a bit of time in the book about that because um, I mean, I'm in my sixties. I, I don't have that much life worth in me. Okay. So, so I'm going to pull this stuff from wherever I can get it. Well, what do you think about that's That's pretty funny. What do you think about uh, the paradigm? I mean, there, there's different paradigms in how magic works, the technology, the, uh, the principles, but um, there's there's the spirit kind of paradigm where the spirits you're you're calling on spirits to do the work. You're not doing really any of the work. You're you're calling on them to do the work. Um, and then there's the other completely other end of the thing where you are using your life force and your will to complete the work. Where where do you see this um, as far as principles goes? Traditional witchcraft that you practice. Well, I think it's going to depend a lot on the traditional witch that yeah. you ask. Keep in mind, my training is so broad that I'm going to pull yeah. from all of it. In my experience, it's both. It's both. Uh, again, I, I really stress over and over that the more I look into even parapsychology and the research being done there, the information on remote viewing, virtually everything is consciousness. You change your state of mind, you change your state of being, and you can become aware of things at a distance. You can merge with different levels and worlds and realms. So that part is you, that part you need to do. If you don't do that, you're not even going to be able really to get in touch with the spirit that well. Having said that, there are other world beings uh, that you can and should, and who want to be reached out to and work with you. Um, And you'll you'll find as you look at traditional spells from from, uh, old cunning books, they almost always 
talk about calling on some spirit. There's always some spirit's name in there. So that's an important part of it. Now, I use a, an alrun root, uh, as a mandric root, but it's made from an ash tree. And that is where the familiar spirit that I work with, how she comes through to me. But I will take in my spells oftentimes, and I'll ask her to go and visit so-and-so and make this happen. So I put the desire out there. I'm in my, my little circle at my hearth, putting a lot of energy into this, pulling energy in, planetary energy, whatever, building it up on all the realms because I have this staying there. I'm picturing this. I know what I want, and I want to affect this particular person. Then when I'm done and I'm there, and I've and usually at the beginning of my spells, uh, rituals, I always call on the spirits and particularly my familiar to be present. And then at once I've reached that peak and made it very clear that I have that image that I know exists out on these realms, the astral realm, whatever you want to call it, then I will ask her to go and make this happen. So it's, it's both. It's all of it. It's all of it. I... I I know many excellent uh, magicians and and witches or Wiccans who are great at spell casting that just use their own power, but it seems like they're missing a piece. Um, I've known some people who work just with spirits and can be very effective, but I think if you combine it, at least the system I use, when you combine it, it seems to be highly effective, um, not overly taxing. And, and a lot of fun, <laughs> just a lot of fun. Well, it also seems as though spirits understand symbolic language. Mm. And so when you're doing a spell or you're using certain magical uh, gestures, symbols, methods, they understand that. And it's a way of communication, I think, as well. It seems that ritual is a form of communication with the invisible world that may be in some ways more effective than just speaking it, unless you're dealing with the deity or a spirit of speech. As I understand it, and I, I talk about it in the Willow Path too, uh, the symbols, the rituals, even the words, the words of power that are used in any esoteric order, whether it's hermetic um, or witchcraft, or whatever, really become the language through which we relate to those other world forces and that those other world forces choose to relate to us through. And so you have to really, whatever system you get involved in, whether it's Egyptian, voodoo, um, witchcraft, you have to become immersed in all the symbology related to those items, related to what you're doing, or it really doesn't mean a whole lot. If you can get yourself immersed in that, then you can communicate with these other world forces through that language, just like I'm speaking with you in English. Now, if you were French, we'd have, we'd have a problem there. So that's why you need to, you need to fully understand and un understand the symbols behind it. And so that's why myth and legend are so important um, because they teach that, they immerse you in that. That is the way that we create that bridge with those spirits within that tradition. Now, the question I've often had is if I use the symbols of say Egyptian practice to relate to Celtic deities, am I speaking a different language and will they understand? And that's a question that I, I've wrestled with for a long time. And I, that's why I try very hard not to mix traditions. And yet, here I am in traditional witchcraft, which 
really doesn't have a set of symbols other than simple basic things like a wooden staff and a knife and a cup and a cauldron. And I'm calling on these deities. But I believe the reason I can do it in that system is because it is so basic. It doesn't have all these other rich symbols that the others do. Traditional witchcraft, you're dealing with very basic imagery um, that's very down to the earth, very, very survival oriented. And so I think those symbols can relate to multiple, multiple beings. But, but again, I'm still working on it. It's, this, is a, this is a work in progress. Uh, anybody says they have all the answers they're lying to you. This is, this is the fun part. It's like science. I mean, we're experimenting. Let's try this and see what happens. And anybody that approaches magic from the point of view of dogma or this is the way it is, well, I maybe it's, that's the way it is in their system. But I think they're missing the boat because this is a science. It is an art. And so I want people to, once they learn the foundations, feel free to say, well, I don't have frankincense. What if I try some rosemary? What's going to happen? Feel free to do that. I, I tell my students, feel free to substitute ingredients for spells, but be aware you may not get what you asked for. Let's let, but that's how science develops. That's how technology develops. Well, the remarkable thing about the Egyptian religion was that it seemed to span the different levels of, of religious development. So you, you have the highest ceremonial magic, the highest theurgy, which is in, in essence no different from true religion. Then you, but you also have deeply archaic indigenous shamanic practices. You did, you did. And, and that's why when I think I, I've never seen any books on it or anybody write on it, but I think that it would be fair to speak of an Egyptian witchcraft. It depends on what you call witchcraft. What we do know from the archaeological record is that there were there was a religion of the common people too. Now keep in mind everyone at some point in their life had to serve within the temples as a priest, but usually it was a, at the lower levels, the Wab priest, which would be somebody who did the day-to-day -day tasks, harvest the food for the gods, uh, clean the place up, things like that. They seldom are allowed into the inner temples. Um, but they had their own common religion among themselves. Every home had either a small shrine or chapel or a uh, altar to a particular deity that they were resonated well with or worked with well. Um, but there were also local sorcerers who would do work for them, who would cast spells for them. And the interesting thing is, I think Geraldine Pinch in her book on Egyptian magic, um, she's an Egyptologist, she talks about it, how a lot of times the higher priesthood, when they weren't on duty, would go out and do magic in the community for local people as that. So, so you can see how is that witchcraft? Well, probably not if you're talking the most traditional, which is probably not, but is it sorcery? Is it the basic thing? Yeah, absolutely. And I can see how too, it would eventually develop on its own among the people and become a type of rural witchcraft. And I think you still see that today in, in Egypt. I see that, if I know, from what I've seen or read, uh, that the local people still carry on a lot of customs and call on a lot of the older gods um, in their own rural fashion, even though they're Islamic. And you see the same thing in Mexico, too. Right now, uh, when we traveled in uh, Mexico, um, 
the Locomayans down in uh, southern areas uh, near the Guatemala border, border, highly Christian, highly Catholic, yet they would leave uh, offerings up for Chalk, the god of rain. We'd go into these caves, and you could see where they had just done ritual. There was still smoking. I mean, these guys were, were still practicing, worshiping the old gods of their tradition. So that, too, I, I believe that's really where witchcraft comes from in every culture. Traditional witchcraft of Europe is, in my opinion, the mm -hmm. same thing. The rural folks still had these beliefs, these practices in their old ways. Yes, they were also Christian. Yes, they also understood the, this whole other thing. But they still would revert back to it. And I think that's where traditional witchcraft comes from, coupled with the hermetics that crept into it. And um, again, a lot, of, a lot of historians right now are really bucking that idea and really fighting it and stating that, no, there was no such thing. But I think the evidence is there that it is. It was there. It was a folkloric yeah, practice. I agree. Well, and, and what you're saying is interesting because if you consider your points there and the spread of the ISIS cult into Europe, mm. um, is, you know, I mean, it spread as far as even Great Britain. Yes. And so there would have been a natural symbiotic process between the indigenous practices of the local people and the ISIS cult, yeah. which was already syncretic and adaptable by nature. And so what if there were vestigial, vestigial, vestigial remnants of the ISIS cult that integrated with the indigenous animistic practices that survived underground in the rural communities without being picked up on by Christian authorities you know it's interesting you say that i was reading a book um oh, i can't remember names of put up put up by troy books but uh on uh, cecil williams and he he talked about or had artifacts in the museum of uh british witchcraft that he ran which claimed that exact thing claimed that there were covens that were very old that worshiped isis now it's did he have any solid proof? I don't think it was enough to prove it, but it's interesting that you see these legends. There's legends of Egyptians traveling up to Scotland, but we can't prove it. We can't prove it. But, you know, the world's not as big as we think it is. And these people did travel. They, we know the Celts were down in Egypt. We know that these, I, these people were all talking to each other. There were trade routes going out to Asia. So why wouldn't there religious beliefs intermingle and move and and whatever why wouldn't you have people learning from egyptian priests and egyptian priests studying from druids i don't see any reason to think that that could not have been the problem is where's the where's the evidence how do you prove it the most of these traditions were oral so you, it's so hard to prove and so you turn to folklore and say well folklore says this but the argument I get from historians today is, well, there's nothing written down to prove it until um, the 19th, 20th centuries. So it was all made up. And, in, you know, that's, that's the most frustrating thing. Um, I can point to specific records from church, from the Catholic Church from 1100 years ago that talk about groups of people worshiping goddesses and forests. And I point that out. And then the historians will say, well, the church probably made that up to make people want to come to them. Or it was taken under torture, you know, and I go, wait a minute, it's taken under torture. These were abbots who were recording what they saw. <laughs> and I, I, I've gone round and round. It's not worth fighting with them. So I just let them say what they say. And I know what I believe I know. And I could be wrong. I'm not going to lie. I, I don't, I wasn't, well, wasn't there in this life. 
It's amazing how much has been lost to time as far as hard evidence in the form of, you know, records and whatnot, even with like very famous figures of the past. I mean, that were prolific writers. Um, you've got 20 books written under their name and we've got like one or two. Um, it's, it's just f- frustrating <laughs> is one word. It, is. it really is. Um, yeah, I, I hate to use the term, but I'm going to, to me, it was nothing but uh, genocide. Nothing but genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, when mm-hmm. culture came in, they had the world's most powerful army at their disposal because everybody converted over to that particular philosophy. And they just marched across Europe and just slaughtered anybody they didn't agree with them. And so much is lost. And anybody that argues that that didn't really happen, look at, they use the same pattern when they went to Mexico. They use the exact same pattern. Oh, no, it's it's true. It's true. And they started with the Gnostics first. I mean, yes. it's strange. It's almost as if, it's weird because the, the original Christians were persecuted by by this artificial form of the religion, and it's essentially erased except for those that were able to go underground. And then yeah. the artificial form of the religion just went around doing that to everything and everyone else. It's almost like the Borg in Star Trek, the next generation. And the ironic thing is, is now, now, it's vogue to say it didn't exist at all, that there was no such thing, that it's all a neo-pagan invention. Let's go out and destroy all evidence of, the, of, of it existing. Let's kill anybody that practiced those beliefs and then say it didn't exist. And if you say it did, you're making it up. It's just, it's just, it's just the crowning jewel in a whole long system of... Uh, of genocide. And now that whole culture is turning on itself. Now you see the Abrahamic tradition just turning on itself. And uh, I'm just stunned. I'm just stunned. So, well, it's a, it's, it's such a crazy thing. I mean, it could have been a different world because we have rem, we have Druidic records of Gnostics coming to the Celtic countries and peacefully coexisting with the Druids and interchanging information with them. I mean, there's even, apocryphal myths or stories of Simon Magus teaching a Druid named Mog Ruth. Yes. Yes. And, and mar- marrying into, or not marrying into, but getting involved with, you know, a Celtic woman and having children there. I mean, so it could have been a very different world in a different way. Well, I think esoteric Christianity f- along the Celtic lines is very interesting. It really is. Um, and I can see I can see the real spiritual quality within it. There's a lot of good in that religion. I, I don't have to agree with the symbology or the, or even the book that they teach, but I think a lot of the imagery and the spiritual teachings that came out of uh, a lot of the Celtic Christianity was very, very good. And um, it's just not my path. It's just not my path. So speaking of path, uh, before, because we've covered a lot here, I do want to talk a little bit about actual getting down in the trenches spellcraft, you know, you know, because I think that from everything we've said, you're a person who has probably done a lot of spells in his life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's see how many this week. (laughs) To me, it's a natural function. It's a natural function that is part of us. Uh, you know, we're given the ability to pick up items with our hands. We don't deny our hands the right to pick that up. Magic is just a normal function that whoever, whatever gave us. It's, it's just very normal. Um, I think if people could get past their current 
paradigms, you'd find that you're a lot more aware of psychic currents and energies around you than you ever thought. Uh, it doesn't make you special. I think that's the normal state of mind, and we've closed it all off through our thinking. So spellcrafting really is the the meat. It's it's the, where the as I've said before, where the rubber hits the road. It's you're no longer philosoph being philosophical here. It's no longer theory. This is practice. And this is where you either prove what you're saying is true, or you go back and say, okay, what was wrong with that? And so in my mind, it's a lot like science or art. It is an art because it's specifically surrounding you and how you relate to these forces and make things happen in your life. But it's a science because there are specific steps involved in this um, on an internal level that you have to maintain to be successful at it. And so, um, yeah, I do a lot of spells. And again, the spells will vary. Uh, most of the spells I do, I make up myself using the correspondence and the teachings I've gathered over the years because everybody's life's different. And so the circumstances are different. So I'm going to be affecting this thing over here. Nobody else has ever had to affect it like that. So yeah, I'll make up my own, but it's again, all based on the principles that I've been taught through Julie, through my teachings with other groups, through uh, my, what some of the writings of Sibylique, though she was very flamboyant and commercial. Uh, if you read between the lines, there's some excellent material in her books. So yeah, I do a lot of spells. Um, What's the process of casting a spell look like? in its most basic form, or perhaps even what's some advice for people who want to practice operative spellcraft? Sure. The first thing is keep it simple, work within your realm of availability. You can't sit at home and burn a candle looking for a million dollars to come at your door through the mail. Uh, and you'd be surprised how many Thank people you. expect that. They expect that lottery and it doesn't work that way it can but you've got to be really good and most of us aren't um you've got to work within your realm of availability so i was just talking to a student the other day about this let's say you have the desire to become ceo of xyz company you can do that spell right now send your resume in sit back and wait at best what's going to happen is they're going to you might get attention they might sit and look at it and go what is this but you don't have the qualifications, you don't have the education, you're not going to get it, no matter how good your spell was. Instead, you need to say, all right, what are the steps I need to get to physically to get there? Okay. So first, I need to get hired there on some position, perhaps in a lower level executive position. Well, what, what qualities do I need to get there? Do I have them? Well, if I do, now how do I make myself become known above all the other candidates? So that's where the magic comes in. Once you get to that level, then it's working your way up step by step along those lines. Um, part of it, too, is removing the obstacles on a physical level that are um, keeping you from getting the goal. So, again, if you don't have the degree that they're looking for to get that job, no matter how much magic you do, they're going to say, he doesn't have the degree. We can't hire him. You know, it's, it's, you've got to, so you've got to eliminate those things that are holding you back. I think a big problem for people, too, is confidence. Um, you need to be sure of yourself, of who you are, uh, your strengths, your limitations, be honest with yourself, and believe in yourself. And so many people, they want success, but then they don't believe they're worthy of it. So you'll do a spell, but you don't really believe that you're worthy of that goal. 
So you have to convince yourself that you are. You have to know that you are. So those some of the those, those are some of the internal things. Um, on a more fundamental level, you need to use the right tides of power that we talked about. You need to understand the right planetary energy that you're going to need. You're going to need to know the right items that correspond directly to those forces. Uh, so if you're going for that promotion or that job, you might want to work with the planet Jupiter for expansion of money. Well, what plants, what herbs, what incenses, what colors, and on what realm are you going to be focusing that energy? In the Agawatic system of hermetic magic, they have different colors that correspond to different realms. And so if you're going to put this image out on the astral realm, again, I don't care for that term, then you're going to want to use the symbols, images, and colors that relate to that. So there's that there's all that work behind the scenes that you have to know. And that's where the hard work comes in and the years come in and knowing what is the best, what are the best references. Let's say uh, I'm just starting out and I don't have any of that, but I need I need action now. How strong is your desire? How how much how real is your desire? And you have to balance that desire with two other things. And the other one is reason or logic and your intuition. So I, I need this job. I have to have this job. I really do. Okay. What do you know about the job? What do you know about the company? Have you gathered everything you can up about them? You need to have that because that's going to form the matrix that allows that desire to go and make the image to make it happen. And then the last thing you need is intuition. And that is, you'll find that witches depend a lot on intuition, perhaps more than logic, because I want this goal. I know all about it, but how does it feel? If I get it, is it right? And you'll know, you know, you want a relationship with a certain person. How does it really feel? Is this the right thing? Am I doing the right thing here? You know, is it going to be the right thing for me or for this person? Is this job going to be the right thing? If you get any tickle inside saying, I don't think so, then don't do it. It's, it's not worth it. And you probably, your spell probably won't work. Um, those are some of the mechanics. Uh, another thing is um, Julie used to stress, keep secret about it. I know psychologists will say the reason a spell works because you told the person you cast a hex on them. I've never told a person when I told a cast a spell on them. I never would. You just do the spell and you let it go and you forget about it. You don't tell anybody. And the way Julie explained it was you're sending the energy off. It's like shooting an arrow at your target. But if you sit there and constantly thinking, I wonder if it worked, or you tell people about it, you're putting a drag on it. It's like having a string tied to the arrow and tugging on it to see if it's still going. And of course, it's going to fall short of the mark. Well, essentially the same thing. Do the spell, believe in yourself, send the energy, forget about it. Don't tell anybody, give it some time and let it happen. The question comes up, well, what if it doesn't happen? Uh, and of course, that, that does happen at times. A couple of things could be going on. One, maybe it wasn't the right thing for you. Maybe it just wasn't in your fate. Maybe you weren't supposed to really have that. Who decides that? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure I believe in karma, but I do believe some things just aren't meant for us. But the other thing is maybe it needs a kicker. Maybe you need to do it again. So the question is, I just said, forget about it. Let it go. Let it happen. Don't tug on it. This doesn't seem like I'm contradicting myself. Well, both Julie and Sybil would 
talked about the ability to go back and revisit it. Julie used to call the drum roll, but you would let a period of time pass. So you do this spell, you need to get this big hairy goal of yours to you. You let it happen, let the energy do its thing, you let a cycle go by. At a minimum, three days, Sybil would say, give it at least 28 days, one lunar cycle. Then do it again and let it go. It's, a, it's what they call the drum roll. And then the, the term drum roll in traditional witchcraft is used a couple ways. In other ways, you could have different witches in different places doing the same exact spell at the same time on a specific goal. That's also called the drum roll. But uh, in this case, um, I was talking to somebody and she's looking for a job. She's trying to get that specific job. Well, that's one option. If it's a really big job, there's a lot of candidates. You can put it out there again. Just keep feeding that image out there but let some time pass where you don't even think about it. You've got to let it go. Those are some of the mechanics involved. After you do the spell, immediately after, do something else. Go do something else. Have a meal. Go have some fun. Watch a movie. Go dancing or something. Do something totally, totally else. Do not sit there in the room and think about it and dwell on it. Just let it go. And, uh, you know, so you'll see a lot of the old images of the Sabbaths of Witches. They would end all their work with the big feast and dancing and music. And then that's, that's, and us, that's exactly what Julie and her family would do. Um, that's the way I was taught is we just totally forget it and have a fun and let, let it go. Um, those are some of the things you need to look at when you do a spell. Don't be verbose. Don't mumble. Realize that your words are extension of your will. So be clear, concise, let it go. Um, I want to talk briefly about ethics too. Um, I'm not one that believes in the law of three. I'm, I'm not sure where that came from. I suspect it came from in Celtic mythology. There's a lot of talk about three powers, three, uh, like the three deaths or the three uh, lucks, things like that. But the idea that something will come back on you three times, whatever you do comes back on you three times. I've never seen that in any of the legends. I don't know if that ever happening in reality. I've never seen that in my life. What I will say is like your material life, you are responsible. And there's a price to be paid for everything you do. And somehow you're going to have to answer for that in some way. So if you treat people well, you know, treat them the way you'd want to be treated. You know, would you want that spell done to you? Um, that's how I look at it. It's very rare that we will do anything of a negative nature because we just feel that um, we're responsible, we're responsible human beings, and, and we have to take, a, take a, uh, responsibility for our actions. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. So let's talk about your books. Let's talk about you have two books yeah. out. You have another one coming out. What, what's the deal with those? Where can people find them? What's the theme? So and when is the um, new one coming? It's a trilogy of books coming through Troy Books out of the UK. Um, I'm familiar with them. Uh, wonderful publisher. They are very, very serious. It's run by two people who are very, uh, who are practicing witches themselves. And they started the company, oh man, 15 years ago because she couldn't get published. And so she made up her own and it's just done exceptionally well. And now they have a number of titles that um, are all revolving around uh, traditional magical arts and traditional witchcraft. Um, the, the book that I first went out is The Willow Path, which I have here, this is paperback version. And um, really it's an introduction to the witchcraft as I practice it and as I've been taught from Julian, from my teachers. And um, 
I am going to say it's not really a beginner's book. You know, it's not a 101 book. Uh, you need to have some basic understanding of uh, magical practices. But once you do, um, it'll help you understand a lot of what we've talked about here today. The second book is Horns of the Moon is coming out now. Uh, they are taking pre-orders. And um, in fact, I just signed book plates that are going out to the publisher and they're going to be mailing out all of the um, special order books uh, probably next week. And um, that book is about uh, techniques in traditional uh, magical arts. And in that, I talk a lot about spirit flight, the, the, um, uh, the fetch. Uh, I talk a lot about the training of the witch. Also, uh, I talk more on the spiritual lines, how to work with spirits themselves. Um, that's a large part of the book. It's meant to set the foundations. I talk also about time and what time is and isn't in magic and as related to ancient Egyptian witchcraft. Um, you'll find a section in there where I talk about the various bodies um, that we possess. And I compare it between Egyptian magic and uh, ceremonial magic and traditional witchcraft. And I end the book um, with a discussion on getting in touch with local spirits, understanding the forces within the land and and relating to them on a spiritual level. And a lot of people will pick up a book on witchcraft and not see the connection between spirituality and witchcraft. But keep in mind that the spirituality of the witch is not like what most people think. It's not some revelation where some high and mighty being appears to you and you're suddenly an adept or uh, self-initiated or uh, a messiah type figure. In traditional witchcraft, in my mind, spirituality is where you become aware, where you become aware of your connection to the land, to the energies, to the forces, the beings, the spirits, and where you become fully evolved in yourself. So I end the book on that level. Um, the third book that I'm working on now, and it'll be out, I don't know when it'll be out, probably a couple of years, maybe sooner, is The Art. And this is all part of the Gyasha series, which Gyasha means the bond within nature. And uh, the art is going to be uh, a lot of the spells and rituals and magic that I actually practice. So, um, so that's it in a nutshell. That's great. No, thank you for all that. And thank you for all the, the great advice um, and contextualizing traditional witchcraft. Because a lot of people nowadays are getting all their information from social media, YouTube, TikTok, uh, bad movies, bad TV shows. <laughs> yeah, um, that's where a lot of this information yeah. is coming from. So yeah. it's nice to have this this context. And I I love the the idea of magic following the path of least resistance. I think that was a, a great takeaway, um, as well as as you know your example of the lottery, you know, or or getting a job. Sorry, um, mm -hmm. you're not going to find love by doing a love spell and, and never leaving your house, you know, you're not going to get a job by doing the same thing. So yeah, all great advice. Um, is there a website people can go to, to find um, updates on what you're doing or? Yes. Um, uh, www.aketservices, A-K-H-E-T services, all one word.com. And uh, Aket is from an ancient Egyptian word meaning fire, but it harkens back to Aket Huthru when we, uh, had the school going and I'm planning to get those courses out. 
I have uh, a lot of information in ancient Egyptian magic, but it also has a lot of information on traditional witchcraft and magical arts. So that is available. We're selling the books there. I post information on the different classes. I do a lot of virtual classes through a local bookstore here. They help set up the platform, but it's open to anybody and from anywhere in the world. We have people from uh, Australia, actually, in some of the classes. And next month, I'm actually doing a live class near Salem in Braintree at the bookstore that is doing it with us. Um, so that ought to be fun. That one's going to be on magical protection, how to protect yourself and set protections around the home. Cool. So um, looking forward to it. Cool, man. Well, this has been great. I can't believe it's been two hours. Uh, it, kind of, <laughs> it flew by. Uh, it we want to thank you so much for your time and the energy you put into this. Um, we know you've, you're a busy guy and uh, we just really appreciate all the uh, knowledge you've given us and, and the time. So thank, yeah, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you for being so charitable and so giving with, with your knowledge and insight and acumen. It's truly appreciated. And uh, also Troy books, that's a, they're a great publisher and I'm a big fan of Troy books. I think they put out really solid quality material and the fact that you're published by them, I think, says a lot about the quality of your material. I mean, I love Gemma Gary. I love Troy Books. And you're clearly putting out the same level of quality. And I think that if people are looking for something to really grow and learn with, but that is eminently practical, this is a good direction absolutely, to go. Absolutely. I, I have uh, several books from them. And every one of them has just been outstanding. They really are good. Um, and great people to work with. Just super nice people. Yeah, well, thank you. This has been really fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you, Carrie. All right, that was Carrie Wisner talking about his book, The Willow Path, which is actually a trilogy. He was very generous with his time, knowledge, expertise, insight on this episode. I was really humbled by how much he was willing to share in a, even a technical way. I mean, he didn't just go into ideas, but he kind of went into applications. And I think that anybody who's interested in practical esoteric work would probably find a lot of what he had to say interesting or even useful in some way. Yeah, very much so. And uh, it was nice to get a kind of clear uh, picture of what traditional witchcraft may look like from a practitioner of many, many years. We are inundated, as we talked about a little bit in the episode, by a lot of, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of garbage out there, I guess is the nice way to put it. So it's, it's good to be able to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff in this way. Yeah, I mean, with the proliferation of the word witchcraft and the popularity of the idea of the symbol right now, there's so much passing itself off as this when it isn't really associated with it in actuality. And I think it's necessary to depict sincere and serious pictures of the reality of it. I think people need to see that this is something that some people hold dear and it is not a flippant masquerade or a um, attention seeking technique. It, it's, it's actually an art that takes some people many years to ma master and they take it very seriously. The people who are truly witches that I've met are very serious about doing magic and very focused on self-development usually too. Yeah, this was, uh, I mean, we talked about this before we 
before we recorded and I had some reservations just about witchcraft as a topic in general, just because of all the baggage that comes with the word witchcraft. But, you know, shaman has a lot of baggage, magician and magic, they come with a lot of baggage. So I'm happy to kind of reframe the conversation, I guess you could say. It's not all about um, the craft or uh, Sabrina or whatever that movie is with Bette Midler and those other two ladies. It's, it's, um, the, movie it was, called, the movie's called Gone with the Wolves. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Gone with the Wolves. Dances with Wolves? Something like that, yeah. Are you being serious? No. Okay. <laughs> sorry, to, sorry to break your momentum there. You can cut all that out. No, it's good. It's good. I don't know what that stupid movie is called. I can't remember. What, what the hell is Hocus, that? Hocus, I think, is what you mean. What's that? I think it's Hocus Pocus. Oh, yes. Yeah horrible but anyway um so yeah it was a great conversation um carrie's a really cool guy very generous very open with his story and uh, a lot of great advice because he's got a lot of years under his belt so i would highly recommend people go check out his his stuff it's very interesting it's also very interesting to hear the life story of someone who is a little older who's really been pursuing some path like this for a long time because you get to see this path of development that they went on this path of growth. Seems like most people, they may do a few things, but eventually each, each genuine practitioner I met, they kind of find this groove they get in and they kind of develop themselves along that track after a certain point solely. Okay. All right. I'm going to do the book review this week and I think it's an appropriate one. Um, It's a little bit different than what we would normally cover. Uh, The book this week is The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook, a home manual by James Green. If you're only going to get one book on herbal medicine, tincture making, uh, that sort of thing, I would highly recommend that this is the one that you get. The author is extremely knowledgeable and it's 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 a hefty book. I mean, it's about 350 ish pages long. So it's a, it's a big book with covers a lot of material. Um, it takes you from A to Z as far as making herbal medicine, just with the plants you can find around your, your neighborhood, your yard. So, I mean, the book talks about, like I said, it, it talks about some common herbs. So he covers things like chamomile, comfrey, dandelion, elder, fennel, uh, let's see, mugwort, nettle, peppermint, valerian, willow, yarrow, and, and just a lot of things that people consider to be weeds. Um, this, is, this is medicine. And um, he teaches you how to make tinctures, how to make infused oils, teas, of course, wine infusion, vinegar infusion, decoctions, solvents, uh, syrups, baths. So it's, it's a very comprehensive book. Like I said, it takes it could take a beginner from someone who knows nothing and and take you to someone who's quite competent. Um, he lists a lot of recipes and stories, and he even talks a little bit about um, ritual for actually picking plants and communicating with plants um, as allies. So he does have a, a, a bit of a spiritual aspect to it as well, um, which is interesting. So 
I'm going to keep it brief. That's my recommendation. It's the Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook by James Green. Thank you for that. Yeah, it sounds excellent. It sounds utilitarian as well. All right. Thank you for listening. And also thank you recently to the people who posted some very kind comments on different mediums. We're definitely appreciative of the positive feedback. It's a labor of love. And so it makes us feel that what we're attempting to do, which is reach people with meaningful material that can hopefully benefit their lives in some way, that when we receive messages like that, it just sort of confirms that what we sought out to do, we're doing for some at least. And that's a great thing. Yeah. I mean, we got a, we got a nice review from someone in Australia recently. Um, also a shout out to our listeners in Ghana, uh, South Korea, Tunisia, Hong Kong, Singapore. Um, we've got listeners all over the place. And uh, we just want to say that we, we appreciate you listening and we're glad that uh, we can reach you. And like I think I might have said in the last episode, you have to always keep in mind, you can do these things that the people on here come on and discuss. You are capable of achieving things yourself. And our hope is that you might become inspired by some of this to develop yourself or experiment a little and perhaps discover something exciting. Exciting.